Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm interviewing Neil Berliner. Now, Mr. Berliner has a lot of different things on his plate. He is a comedian. He is a comedy writer. He's written for many Comedy Central Roast. He's wrote for The Howard Stern Show. He's written um, articles in Mad Magazine. So many different things. And if that's not enough, he's also a medical doctor in the field of psychiatry. So we're going to talk about how his um, you know, medical career has kind of partnered hand-in-hand with his comedy career and how they kind of lend themselves to, to one another. We're going to talk about how he, he started writing for The Howard Stern Show. We're going to talk about how he started writing for Mad Magazine. So a lot of really, really awesome stuff. Uh, the thing that I, I guess I found most interesting is, you know, he's he's written for many different people uh, that have done roast. And I, I think that the world of, of roasting um, is an interesting one. It's, it's definitely funny, but it takes like the perfect kind of joke to, you know, kind of be mean, but not so mean that, that hurts people's feelings. You know, kind of, uh, um, you know, be nice, but at the same time, you know, don't don't make the, the roast lame. So I think that uh, there's a, a fine, a fine, happy medium there. And we kind of talk about what that is. And, and he says some things that I really like there. Um, he's, he's got so much going on. We're going to talk about how he, he spent time uh, working at least in a, a part-time capacity with, with the Howard Stern show and, and some of the things that he did there and just how, how well of a, you know, I guess, a, a fine-tuned machine that that show is. Everyone kind of has their place. Uh, we're going to talk about what makes a good joke and, and kind of what uh, you know comedians do wrong a lot of times when they're first getting started. Um, you know, he's going to talk about uh, some other things that he has going on right now. One being that he wrote a, I guess, a, a short movie on YouTube uh, with a an impressionist named Jason Scoop. That's a, a very talented individual. Uh, he wrote uh, a, a a movie with him called Comedian President that is available on YouTube that you can watch. Uh, we're going to talk about how he wrote a joke book that deals with uh, history, and there's a a kind of a history lesson and then also a joke um dealing with every single day of the year so you can kind of flip through there uh, a lot of really awesome stuff we're going to talk about today just the, the world of comedy something he's been involved in at the highest level for for a good little while so i think you're going to really enjoy this one here is neil berliner i'm here today with neil berliner mr berliner how are you good how you doing i'm good i'm good hardest question of the whole evening just introduce yourself just introduce myself all right, I'm Neil Berliner. I have a few different careers, actually. Uh, I started out as a medical doctor. I'm still a medical doctor, actually. Still practice. And then I got involved with comedy. And I was lucky enough to get involved with the Howard Stern Show. I started uh, with a character, a uh, character who became a recurring guest on the show. She called herself Fruity Nutcake Rapping Granny. She was an old white woman who did rap. And I modernized her act and put basically sex, drugs, and rock and roll into her lyrics. And about six months after that, we got a call from the Howard Stern Show. 
And she made her first appearance with Snoop Dogg, actually, in uh, 1999. And she made a lot of appearances after that on the show. And I got to know people on the show and started writing for roasts there at the Stern Show and uh, got to know Artie Lang and the other guys on the Stern Show. And, you know, one thing led to another. Once you're on the Stern Show, a lot of connections open up, a lot of doors open up. And I started writing for other comedians and started writing for uh, roasts, like the Friars Club Roasts in New York and Comedy Central Roasts. And one thing led to another. I started teaching comedy in New York City at the Pitt, which is a popular uh, improv uh, theater and school in Manhattan. And from that, I got a break and went to Mad Magazine and got asked to write for Mad. So, you know, one door opened, another door opened after that. And here I am. So. Here you are. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to unpack all of that, but I want to, I want to start with maybe one of the more important questions we had to reschedule from yesterday because you said there was a Mets Marlins game. I didn't, I saw the Mets playing yesterday, but I didn't see him playing the Marlins. So no, no, it was a Dodgers Marlins game. Actually. I gotcha. I I, I was wrong. Yeah. It was a Dodgers Marlins game. Did, uh, you know, you're, I believe you're in New York. So I'm assuming you're rooting for the Mets. Is that right? I'm a Met fan, but I live in Florida now. I actually run a clinic from my house in, uh, in Florida in Brooklyn. It's a Brooklyn uh, mental health center. So I'm the medical director there, but I'm able to do it from my home now in Florida. I used to travel to New York every week from Florida. I'm a New Yorker originally, mm. but we moved to Florida about 18 years ago. Mm. And uh, I used to travel to New York every Monday to Wednesday. And I would do my medicine up there and do comedy stuff at night and appear on shows and write for people. And then I'd fly back home Wednesday night to Florida. But since COVID, I'm able to do everything from Florida. So I don't even have to travel to New York. I only travel to New York uh, when I have to for uh, family stuff and, and and comedy events, things like that. Yeah, well, telemedicine definitely in the mental health world is, is huge right now. I work for a university and we just signed a big contract with a with a telehealth, mental health company for our students so i'm i I know that that's i think that's only growing so it seems like you're maybe got into it right at the right time yeah well psychiatry is the only really natural field for telemedicine you really can't do any other specialty by telemedicine they tried like they tried doing dermatology and other things but there's just so much you can see over a screen but in psychiatry it's it's just very well suited for it and just psychiatry was involved with telemedicine before covid even so it was sort of a slam dunk for me out of a home run. Yeah, absolutely. And you just talked about, you. I mean, you, you started that you were in medicine, but we've kind of narrowed it down. You're in psychiatry, which is, I think, even more interesting given the, you know, the other side of your career, which is, is comedy. Talk about how you, how you manage both of those worlds. I've talked to a lot of people doing two very, very different things. One guy was a, a, marketing director at a company and he also was going across the world and uh in examining the shroud of turin so i've had some weird combos but psychiatry and comedy it seems i don't know it almost seems like it lends itself pretty well but also it would be a, a an interesting world to, to to juggle well it definitely psychiatry definitely lends itself to comedy and vice versa i mean in both fields the bottom line is you have to understand people Mm-hmm. You have to understand what makes people tick. And if you can understand what makes people tick, you can understand what makes people laugh. And then you can write 
comedy. So I never saw them as mutually exclusive, you know, and in my practice, I try to be, you know, relatable and being funny in, in medicine. I mean, I don't tell jokes to patients, but, you know, just being a relatable kind of funny kind of person helps you to uh, get your goals across in connecting with patients. So, you know, one thing helps the other. Yeah. Yeah. What, what came first? Did you do medicine and then realize that you had oh, yeah. a, a knack for comedy or was it the other way around? Well, I always knew I had a knack for comedy, but I always knew that I was going to be a doctor too. Yeah. Uh, got a little parental pressure from the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, growing up middle class, lower middle class in Brooklyn, where if you were halfway intelligent, you were expected to become either a doctor or a lawyer back then. There was no computer stuff back then. So I always kind of knew I was going to go into medicine, but I always, on the other hand, knew that I was going to be involved in comedy in some way. I never could have predicted that I would get involved with, you know, big venues like the Howard Stern Show or Comedy Central or even like Mad Magazine. I mean, everybody grew up on Mad, loving Mad Magazine. And I was pinching myself when I was in the office of Mad Magazine being recruited to write for them. It was like dream come true for me, which a lot of comedians say, by the way, you know, Seinfeld once said that he felt that he had made it when he was on the cover of Mad Magazine. So, yeah. you know, a lot of comedians related to Mad as they were growing up. For sure. It's it's certainly an accomplishment for, for sure. And I want to ask you now, you you talked about it kind of in your in your introduction, but let's talk about how you you uh you know started your relationship with the Howard Stern show. And it was through um you know that that rapping granny. And and yes. the question there is it sounds like you kind of did you bring bring that yeah. act to the Howard Stern show? Yes, how did, I did. Yeah, how did, did you how did you decide this is this is something I want to attach myself to because it's not very uh I guess it's not a you know a stereotypical comedy act. I would no, imagine. it isn't. No, it isn't. But I I always was a big Howard Stern fan for years. And I didn't particularly um I mean what I did was um after I met her, I set up a website which was like kind of a novel thing back then in 1999 so i set up a website and a, an answering machine in my office i gave her an 800 number and just set her up with that stuff and i was flabbergasted to hear uh from casey armstrong back then of the howard stern show six months later uh on my answering machine that you know they've seen her and they've seen her around new york city and wanted her on the show so that's how it all started for me professionally. That was my in to do other things in comedy. So, yeah, I mean, yes, I was a big Stern fan. I wasn't particularly aiming for the Stern show, but I was very happy to have gotten involved with it. As a matter of fact, today I, I sent an email to somebody on the Stern show and she wasn't, she was a new person at the show and she wasn't even familiar with the character. So I had to explain what we're talking about now, like the whole genesis of uh, how I got involved with the show. Yeah. And so with, with this act, how, how easy was it to kind of manage it? Cause obviously we've got somebody who is it's kind of a novelty act that's a, you know, a rapping granny. Was she, was she relatively business savvy or was it you kind of managing the, this career? Uh, she, she was more art. She was an artist. Yeah. And she didn't really, you know, she didn't really know the business end of it very well. Um, but she had had some success before meeting me, obviously. Um, she was playing in Greenwich Village and um, she had been on an MTV show called Oddville back then, of you know, novelty acts, like you say. And after we got the Stern show, uh, she went on to um, 
a show, another show on VH1 actually was called Rock and Roll Record Breakers. So they put her on as the world's oldest rapper. And then she went on the Ori show. There's various things. But even with her, getting on the Stern show opened the doors for her. That, you know, she got invitations from all kinds of shows after after the Howard Stern show. There's no there's no segue or gateway like Howard Stern. There's very few in the in the industry that open as many doors as the Howard Stern show. I mean, his appeal is, you know, very, very almost universal. He made serious. I mean, serious exists only because of Howard Stern. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it was a great opportunity and we we went with it. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a great segue for, for you too. You already talked about how you started kind of doing roast with the show, with, with the Howard Stern show. And then, you know, beyond that as well, how, and that's kind of became a little bit of a, a niche or at least something that you, you've gotten pretty, pretty well known for. How did you figure out that you were, you were pretty good at, at writing jokes for, for comedy roast? Well, even as a little kid, and I say little, cause I was very short, uh, in Brooklyn, you know, we would always, the kids would always insult each other. And we used to call them rank out contests. Like we would try to outrank each other. And I was always very good at that. And um, I'm also very into music. And uh, when I was about 12 or 13, I started writing parody songs with a friend of mine, you know, my my, my musical partner, my guitar partner. Um, we started writing songs, parodies about people on our block. So, you know, looking back on it, I was very well I was very well equipped actually to write parody songs and to write for roasts uh, based on things I was doing when I was a kid, like a teenager and an adolescent. I didn't realize what I was doing at the time that it was ever going to lead to anything. But now that I look back on it, I think my roast writing skills were honed from very, very young on from when I was in you know junior high school. So, so you figured out that you were, you were good at it. So now to other people, because I feel like with, when it comes to, to comedy roast jokes, you don't really know what's a good one until you hear a really bad one. So what what makes a good roast joke? Because I feel like it must be, it's got to be, you know, not super lame. And, but also if it gets too mean, then people are like, Ugh, I don't know about that. So, so right. where do you find that? Where do you find that balance? Well, there's got to be a balance between being mean, being funny and not, you know, Insulting on a real core level, I guess. Um, it, it, it's hard to explain. Um, well, you see, the people we roast are people that we like in the first place. We, we have some kind of connection to them. Like, you know, I've done roasts for like like William Shatner, for instance. I was I was involved with the Comedy Central William Shatner roast and the Flavor Flavor roast. So they're kind of they're kind of icons, but the icons that we kind of make fun of as well. You know, mm-hmm. um, if we like, if we really hate a person. Uh, it's in a way it's harder to roast that person. Although Donald Trump has been roasted and a lot of people hate him. So the answer to your question is I'm just babbling and I, I can't give you a good answer right now, but you know, like I was friends with Greg Giraldo. He was the best roast writer. You know, he, all the comedians acknowledged that he was the best at roast writing and, you know, he was mean, but he was also, you have to be clever. I guess cleverness is the key to it. It's gotta be mean, but clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I one of the actually one of the roasts. I won't say who who did this joke, but um, one of the guys from Jackass died, I think, and I forgot who who it was. But um, Johnny Knoxville was on one of the roasts, and a comedian said to him, "Well, you know, it should have been you," and that was her whole apparent joke. So it wasn't even a joke. 
And everybody uh, didn't like that at all, you know. So you got to be, it's got to be funny, clever, not too mean, I guess, and novel. You got to show people, the whole thing with writing jokes is that you have to show people something new. Mm-hmm. You have to show them a common situation in a new way. And, you know, the perfect example of somebody who does that best is Seinfeld. Like, he'll take, a, you know, an everyday nothing situation and, you know, dissect it and make it funny. So I guess that applies to you know, a lot of kind of jokes, including roast jokes. Right, right. Yeah, and I feel like sometimes with with roast, the other, you know, the the balance too is definitely when you come to like a Comedy Central roast or a, a roast on, you know, Howard Stern, sometimes you do get people that I think are just trying to, to shock people. It's a long way away from, you know, the old Dean Martin roast that are right. were just kind of, you know, pretty jovial. So I, I yeah, I, I sometimes they, they get a little bit wild, but I, I don't know. I, right. I, I just wonder how you you balance it. But I think it's just a matter of I, I like what you said when you said that you have to like the person, because I think that goes a long way. And, and, you know, there's a lot of difference between that jovial, you know, making fun of somebody and just trying to be mean. So I, I get exactly. you. Right. Right. Yeah. So talk about, you know, we, we talked about how big of a deal Howard Stern is and how he makes and, and breaks careers. I want you to talk about a little bit more about your experience in, in working, um, you know, with him t- in the extent that you did. Well, you know, I didn't really directly work with Howard, I would say. I mean, um, there are various projects on the show, um, like song parodies, roasts, phony phone calls, all kinds of different things, different people working on the show. The show is very, you know, it's very organized. Um, you know, it's four hours. It used to be four hours five days a week. So to come up with 20 hours of content every week, you need a lot of organization. It looks, it may seem easy when the audience listens to the show, you know, how it's just talking, blah, blah, blah. But it's all very, it's not very, it's not, I wouldn't say it's scripted, but it's very well organized in a lot of ways. So there are different people working on different things. Um, If you're familiar with the show, different People are stronger at certain things and other things, like for instance, Sal and Richard have their phony phone calls that they're very masterful at. And uh, you know, um Fred, Fred Norris is a master of getting the right sound effect immediately on the soundboard. Um, so everybody has their role. And I had a very believe me, I'm not really highly associated with the show at all. I'm a very, very minor person involved in our Stern show. I mean, Howard Stern did a lot more for me than I'll ever do for the Howard Stern show. But my, I saw my role as, well, first of all, I was a practicing doctor. I wasn't working as a Howard Stern show employee. You know, I was just a part-time guy who got lucky. So I saw my role as making the Fruity Nutcake character as funny as possible. And then, you know, I realized at some point that she was getting older and I can't just write for an elderly rap artist for the rest of my life. If I'm going to do anything more in comedy, I have to, I better branch out. So I was very lucky in that um, the guy who ran the roast is a comedian named Bob Levy, the Reverend, he's known as a Reverend Bob Levy. And, you know, I knew Bob and I said, look, I want to branch out from rap and granny and do more stuff on the show. And he was, he was in charge of the roasts on the show. So he let me come to Sirius and, and meet with him and for some reason, I brought six or seven copies of about three pages of jokes that I had written. 
about celebrities, just, you know, just general stuff, stuff that I thought would be good material for the show. And as it turned out, the day of that um, meeting, um, there was a lunch that all the guys on the show went to uh, in the Sirius building, everybody except Howard, actually. So everybody was there. I don't know if you know the players, but people like Gary Delabate, you know, Baba Bowie, and Richard and Sal and uh, Artie Lang. So all those guys were there at this lunch. And at the end of the lunch, I had all these copies of my jokes. So I figured, what the hell, this is my chance. I said, guys, you know, you know me from Rapping Granny, but I want to pass these jokes out and maybe go through them, you know. And if you like them, I'd like to use me. I'd like you to use me for more stuff on the show. And if they are no good, then you'll never see me again. And uh, it turned out that Artie Lang really liked a lot of my stuff that day. And, you know, he took me, kind of took me under his wing at the show. So that led to me doing roasts like his roast on the show, Artie's roast, and Andy Dick's roast, and uh, Gary Delabate's roast, um, Andy Dick's roast, did I say? Yeah. And uh, Ronnie the Limo Driver uh, did his roast. So... You know, I wrote for all those all those roasts. And then that led to Comedy Central. So as I said, one door, you know, opened another. And but that was a big day for me that the fact that uh, Bob Levy let me um, meet with him. And then it turned out that that lunch was very fortuitous for me because everybody from the show was there and they got to hear my stuff. And it you know went over pretty well. That's how that evolved. You know? Yeah. So what what is it? What's it look like to to write for for roast the, the way that you that you did and the reason i asked that because i've talked to actually two different writers from the tonight show one with jimmy fallon one back with with jay leno and you know they were kind of guided where hey you know send in jokes about xyz send in a joke send in the jokes that you have about you know this celebrity when right. it came to the roast did they do they just let you go go loose and send in whatever you want? Or were they saying, well, you know, we want to joke about, you know, no, no, this? No, no. no. The, the way I approached it was this. I knew who was going to be roasted. I also knew who was going to be on the dais. Mm -hmm. So I just wrote jokes about everybody. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because everybody roasts everybody on a roast anyway. Right. So I just wrote material that anybody on the dais could use. And when I decided I want to branch out to Comedy Central, well, Artie let me write for the Shatner Roast. He was on the Shatner Roast. I wrote jokes for him for that roast. But after that, I wanted to write for more roasts. So I, uh, the Flavor of Flav Roast was coming around. And I found out who was going to be on the dais. And I don't want to say who I wrote for, but I found out that um, somebody who had never been on a comedy roast was going to be on that roast. So I contacted that person through management and said, look, I have experience, blah, 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 experience. And um, I'd like to write for you. I'll do it for free. You know, so that person agreed. And then I wound up getting uh, my my lines on the Flavor Flavor Roast. So, you know, I, I sort of did an end around. And um, like, I didn't go through directly through Comedy Central. I went through somebody who was going to be on a Comedy Central roast. So you have to sort of uh, duck and weave, you know, around to, uh, you know, to get where you want to go in this business. You know, you have to kind of be innovative, I guess, or use your smarts to uh, to get where you want to go. Yeah. You, know, you have to contact the right people. And for instance, I have IMDb Pro, not just regular IMDb. And IMDb Pro will show you all the managers and agents and all the, uh, you know, ways to connect to celebrities. 
So I can get a hold of just about any celebrity I want to get a hold of and say, look, you're doing XYZ project. See, a lot of these projects for celebrity for celebrities are one-offs. Like they'll do uh, an awards show or uh, you know, they'll be opening some supermarket somewhere or you know, shopping center. They they don't want to write jokes for these kind of things. They would much rather go in, you know, have prepared jokes for them and uh and just do it and pay somebody. And very famous people, you know, will do that very often. I've written for very famous people who just don't want to be bothered. You know, they want to show up and get paid, but they may not want to write all the material from what you just, just want a one-off that they're never going to have to use the material for again. So, you know, ghostwriters come in handy for these kind of people very often. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you decide who you want to, you want to reach out to with that? Because there's, I mean, there's jokes that, no matter who tells them, it's just funny that, you know, there's, there's funny jokes that's going to transcend anybody. And then there's certain jokes that only work for certain people. So how do you, how do you manage that? Well, you know, I sort of uh, gravitate toward people I like in comedy myself or celebrities who I admire, you know, if I admire some of their projects. Like, Oh, this guy's right. You know, this guy's going to do this or that. Maybe I'll contact this person. I can write good stuff for him or her. And you know, that's worked out for me pretty well. Yeah. Not all the time, you know, very often. Right, right. And so also that's... comedians, you know, they want more material. You see, everything for stand-up is in terms of uh, how many minutes the comedian has. You know, you always want to be adding minutes. So I'm pretty good at what's called punching up stuff. I can I can add minutes to comedians' routines. So they might already have a routine that's, let's say, three or four minutes. If I can add a minute or two to a, to a routine like that, it's very valuable to a comedian mm-hmm. because uh, – like, for instance, some um, comedians who are, you know, the second one to go on stage at a comedy club. You have an opener, then you have a middle, and you have a, a headliner. So the middle guy is a, uh, is a feat called a feature, all right? They, they usually have like 15, 20 minutes of decent material. But to be an, a headliner, even though you, you may not be famous, to headline at a comedy club, you have to have 45 minutes of material. So, you know, comedians all over the country are constantly looking for ways to increase the number of minutes they have on stage, you know, good quality minutes. So, you know, people like me will, um, will add to their, their minutes and that's very valuable to comedians. So is that what you mostly do now? I mean, I know that you do, you've done your own stand up before too, right? Yeah, I do stand up. You know, Artie, the reason I do, I ever got into stand up was because Artie Lang once said to me, he said, dude, you know, you do the writing, but you really got to be up there. You got to see what it, you know, you got to feel what it feels like to be up there. Mm-hmm. So I decided I would do it. And uh, I was very lucky. Um, I was actually working in a hospital on the east side of Manhattan. And the New York Comedy Club was right near the hospital. And I said, well, the hell with it. I'm just going to walk into New York Comedy Club. It was a weeknight. And there was a guy there, a very good comedian named Buddy Flip. And he was running, you know, the shows at New York Comedy Club back then. It was about, I don't know, 15 years ago, something like that. And I said, uh, you know, I write for this this show, that show, and uh, I'd like to get up there. And he was nice enough to give me five minutes. And I got up there and I bombed. And, you know, not only did I bomb, but I said, you know, the, the audience didn't know what they were doing. I, I'm going to go to another comedy club tonight. So I went over to the Gotham Comedy Club across mm. town in Manhattan. And I got somebody else named Brian McGinnis to agree to let me do a few minutes. And I bombed over there, too. So it was a great experience to bomb and then to realize that you better be better prepared when you uh, when you do comedy on stage. So and since then, you know, I've gotten up there once in a while and I, I'm very well prepared when I go on stage. So 
I don't really do many open mics, but I, I test out my jokes and on Facebook and other social media places. And uh, when I go up there, I do fairly well. You know, I do just a few minutes or I'll host a show. Hosts can do, you know, three minutes here, three minutes there before and after each comedian. So I've been pretty fortunate with that, but I'm much more, I'm much better prepared when I go on stage than I used to be when I started out. Yeah, yeah. And that's something I tell younger comedians, you know, a lot of young comedians, they do these open mics and they don't know what they're doing and they, they're looking at notes and they're trying to do crowd work and do all kinds of stuff. I say, look, just do, a, I'd rather have you do a minute or two of quality stuff than be, you know, bumbling around up there, you know, trying to find your way. That's not what an open mic is really for. It's for you to do a minute or two of, of jokes, real jokes, you know, forget the crowd work when you're, when you're a young comedian. Some of them try to, you know, go ahead of themselves and do crowd work too soon. But Yeah. And that's something I, you know, I've taught in New York City. I've taught at various places and I've taught at the World Series of Comedy main event a couple of times. And that's basically the message I give to, to younger comedians, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've went to a lot of uh open mic nights as a as a audience member. I'm I'm not in the comedy world, but the thing that I noticed that I I feel like that you can tell sometimes and the thing that is unfortunate sometimes is it seems like sometimes when people are bombing and not doing well and they start crowd work and then that's not going well, they just get meaner and meaner and say meaner and meaner things about people in the audience. And that just goes really, really sour. So right, yeah, right. that's, 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 that's rough. I I've been the, uh, I've been the uh, blunt of some of that meanness before. And I, I still remember yeah. some of it. So that's funny. Yeah. I want, I want to, uh, you know, you're talking about how maybe you're, your strongest side of things is in writing. And you talked about how um, you, you've done some work for, for Mad Magazine. Talk about that. Yeah, well, I was lucky in the fact that um, from my teaching, one of my students had been writing for Mad Magazine. And uh, in about, I think it was 2014, Mad wanted some new blood. So they asked their writers to bring people to a meeting in uh and on madison avenue and mad was purposely placed on madison avenue so uh there was a meeting of about 20 people and um it was wild they had statues of alfred e newman in the room in the conference room and copies of mad everywhere it was really cool it was really like one of my best days in comedy i think to be you know invited to man and so they had this meeting where they had all these rules about if you're going to write for Mad, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. Like they didn't want anything on Alfred E. Newman. That was all covered. See, Mad is a very, another very well-organized place. It's very difficult to get things into Mad Magazine because they have, you know, X number of pages, very limited. A lot of things are set, like they have that, you know, fold up, you know, fold out cover in the back and, uh, you know, the spy versus spy. There are various things that uh, are set. So there are not too many pages that are open um, for new things. So they give us all these rules and stipulations and regulations and everything. And um, I really wanted to get something into Mad Magazine. I really, really tried very hard. And um, I was very lucky in that. Actually, I, the editor told me that I was the first one from that group that got something into Mad. It was just like one little silly joke or something but it got in and the funny story about that is that when i got the email that i they said you're now in the usual gang of idiots that's what they call all the writers from mad you know and i was in the parking lot of the supermarket 
And I was going back to my car, looking at my phone, and I saw the email. And I was going, yes, yes, yes. And these two teenagers were walking by me and said, what's going on? I go, I just got into Mad Magazine. They're going, yeah. The kids are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they even knew the magazine. So uh, that was pretty cool. That's awesome. Though. That, that, I mean, that obviously is very exciting. I, I, I love that. Uh, so I mean, is was that was that your was that your one joyous moment? Have you been in mag in, in it more than that one time? Oh yeah, I was. I got into there some more times. And another good thing about another cool thing to me about being in Mad is that there's a list of all the contributors to Mad. I think there are about a thousand some odd people who've contributed to Mad Magazine over the years since like 1955. And I was always a big fan of a guy named Dave Berg when I was a kid. He had this thing called Dave Berg looks at the USA and he would do the uh, jokes and he'd do the cartoons and everything just, and they, again, observational stuff, things that happened to people. And it was really funny. I really loved his stuff. And when I saw the list of contributors to mad, I went straight to my name, right. To see that I was definitely in there, you know, mm -hmm. but right above me was Dave Berg because his, you know, his name is B E R G. My name is B E R L. So I thought it was super cool that I'm right near my idol, Dave Berg, you know, so that, mm. that, I got a kick out of that actually. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's gotta be special. That's, that's awesome for sure. Good in good company. I, I love that. And I want you now to kind of talk about, you just, you, I mean, you've already, you've already mentioned how you help people, you know, add minutes to their, their sets, how you um, have taught classes. What, it, what made you want to want to do that particular thing? Because I don't think all comedians want to do that. They don't want to uh, necessarily, not, not that they don't want to share their craft, but they're definitely not teaching everyone else to, to maybe do better than them. So what, what made you decide you wanted to be a, uh, somebody who teaches the craft? Well, I like the, the skill of writing. I think that's what gives me the most enjoyment in comedy. It's sort of like, you know, some people do crossword puzzles. Some people do that wordle or whatever they do. And I was never into those things, but I always considered like, getting the joke right, like solving a puzzle. So it's, I really enjoy, you know, getting the joke right. And I've heard many famous comedians talking about this again, particularly Seinfeld, you know, to him, like, I know that to him, joke writing, and I, I've met him several times. And I know that to Jerry Seinfeld, his greatest pleasure in life is, is getting the joke right. I know that he said that. And I, I can tell just by, you know, by, by me observing him, um, it's just like, you feel like, yeah, I got it. You know, it's like, I solved the, you know, the big mystery. Like the other day I was writing a song parody, political song parody, and I was writing down all the key words and the rhymes and everything. And when I finally, you know, juggled it all, put everything in the right place in the right line in the right place, the right rhyme with the right rhyme, you know, it's just a good feeling for me. It's just like, I feel like that's like a, it's like a bit of accomplishment to me, you know? So uh, what was the question? I forgot the question. <laughs> the, the question was just why why, oh, why do I teach? passion okay. for teaching yeah oh yes okay then the thing is also this Com most comedians they want to just be comedians mm -hmm. you know they want to they want to take their comedy to the highest level and be comedians and tour all over the country and maybe get a sitcom and you know become millionaires now i knew that my life was not going to go that way you know i was a doctor i had you know i had kids i wasn't gonna i traveled actually for years i traveled as a uh as a uh, pharmaceutical speaker, I was actually the number one speaker in the country for Glaxo for the medication Wellbutrin. So I went on like a speaking tour for a few years and 
It was awesome. You know, they treat you like a celebrity. They put you in the best hotels. You get a limo and you speak in the best restaurants and stuff. But I wasn't going to, I knew I was never going to do that as a comedian, you know, because it's just not how my life was organized. So I decided that the best thing for me would be to, you know, align with comedians and write for them. And since I, like I just said, I get a big kick out of the writing anyway. I figured that would be my involvement in comedy. And that's what I've done. You know, as I said, I get on stage once in a while and it's fun to do that. But I know I'm not truly, you know, a comedian. That's not really my role in all this. My role is much more as a writer. And, you know, and I've gotten, you know, good feedback. So I know I can write and get my stuff in places that I never thought I would get them in, you know. So, uh, that's been fine for me, you know. That's been that's been a good. It's been a good balance for me to to do that, to teach and write, get on stage once in a while, you know. So it's been fun for me that in that way. Yeah, I love that. You mentioned that you've got kids. You said you've got a wife in the other room watching her shows. <laughs> do do yeah. they uh, do they think you're funny? Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> good question. They think I'm funny, but you know, the bottom line is, any comedian will tell you that their family, you know is not going to be cracking up over everything they say. And, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Both of my kids, my family is very accomplished. I have one kid at MIT, went to MIT, another kid was at Google. And my wife's, you know, very high, uh, high up uh, computer executive. So I tell people that, and it's true, I'm a medical doctor and I'm the least intelligent person in my family. And it's definitely true. But mm. do they find me funny? Yeah, they find me funny. I mean, they, they're very good critics of my stuff. So they're able to show me why this joke is no good or that joke needs some tweaking. And they're usually right. So they, they do have good, they don't create humor necessarily, but they all have very good senses of humor. Mm. They they appreciate humor and they can they can really dissect what I do and um and make it better. So I think that's that's important. That that's that's awesome to to have. And I think it's awesome too to to have a family that you you've uh, you've created that is all smarter than you—that's not a bad yeah. thing at all. So hey, I, not bad, right? I love it. Yeah. Um, I want you. You know, you you already talked about a, a piece of advice that you give to aspiring comics as far as you know being prepared when you're when you finally get up there and and do a, a set. Uh, what other advice do you have to aspiring comics? Well, one thing at open mics, you know. You have all these young comedians, mostly young, and all they're doing in the audience is looking at their notes. Nobody's listening to the comedian on stage. And, you know, I really don't go for that. Um, I always listen to the comedian on stage. You can always learn from the comedian who's up there. And when you go up there, you want to you have an audience listening to you. So what's the point of not being an audience when you're sitting there, you know? So I tell comics that, you know, when you're sitting there, you should, you should be prepared already. You shouldn't be, have to be looking at your phone at the jokes that you're going to do up there for the two minutes you're up there. You should have two minutes ready. And this way, you know, you sit there, you can listen to the other people, you can give feedback, you can laugh, you know, if you like the jokes. And that way, you'll also get feedback when you get up there. So I think young comedians need to really hear that message, that they have to participate. An open mic doesn't mean just you getting up there. It means being an audience member as well. 
so that you can get that everybody can get the benefit of the, the whole open mic experience. Or else, you know, what what benefit is there from doing an open mic? Might as well just sit in your bathroom and you know talk to your mirror if you're not going to get any feedback from the audience, right? Yeah. No, I think that's that's really awesome. And I want to get to the the next stage of of your writing, and that is that you wrote a a history joke book. What's what's this all about? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. At the beginning of 2022, a friend of mine, his name is Joey Novick. Um, he's a comedian and he's a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer. And we went to the same high school. We were in the same high school class, but we didn't know each other. There were 1,007 people in our graduating class in Brooklyn. And by the way, our high school is Sheepshead Bay High School in Brooklyn. And we did a show, a Zoom show during COVID. And I called it the funniest high school in America show. And the proof of that is that among our alumni are Larry David and Elaine Boozler, if you remember her. She's uh, one of the, she's listed as one of the top hundred stand-up comedians of all time on just about every list that they do. So, so Larry David, Elaine Boozler, um, Michelle Ballin, who was on last comic standing, very good comedian, friend of mine. So we've had a lot, I'll name the others, I'll name some others, I'll, I'll probably leave somebody out, but uh, Robin Siegel Lakin, she's a, uh, she was a, uh, an alumnus in my year in 73. And she also went on to become a medical doctor. She was in the film Saturday Night Fever as a dancer. Mm-hmm. Then she went on to become an actress and comedian. So she's gone full circle with medicine and into comedy again. And who else? Uh, Jim Williams. Uh, who, I'm, gonna, I'm sure I'm going to leave. Oh, Fred Stoller. I don't know if you know who Fred Stoller is, but if you saw his face, you would know who he is. He's a character actor. He's been on Seinfeld and many, many other shows. He's very, very, very well known. But anyway, these are people who went to my high school. And uh, so we did this uh, Zoom show called Funniest High School in America. And again, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the question. I'm kind of tired. What was the question? The question was you just tell me about your history joke book. Oh, that's right. Okay, back to the joke book. I'm sorry. So, yeah, so Joey Nova contacted me, said, I have an idea for a joke book. I go, all right. He said, let's take um, things in history and make jokes about them. So I said, all right. So what we decided to do was we went from January 1st to December 31st, every day of the year. So we would we would write 366 jokes, if you include February 29th, and um we would write a hist- we would write a joke about some event in history, but we would modernize, we'd make it like a modern joke about something that happened in the past. So I called up my friend Mike Morse from the Stern Show and the Tonight Show. He's a great joke writer, great comedian. He's up in New Jersey. And my other friend, uh, Ron Bo Phillips, a really good comedian in San Francisco. And the four of us, for a year, we took the whole year on the calendar and we divided it up into like, you know, three months each. And we would write three or four jokes each on each date of the year. So we wound up with about 1,200 jokes. And I was the editor of the book, so I decided which joke would go into the book. So we had a joke for every day of the year. And it debuted on Amazon in January. And it turned out to, it became the number one new joke book on Amazon mm-hmm. by the end of January. So, uh, yeah, so that was a fun project for us, fun project. So did it allow people just to read a new joke every day? Did the joke correspond with an event from that day of the year i guess i'm trying to figure that out well you know people would read the book 
they, you know, people would pick up the book and look for their birthday or anniversary. That's how they would read. And then a lot of people have said to us that it's a great bathroom book because you can pick it up at any point and just read a few jokes. And we got, we even got um, emails from history teachers who said, this is a great way to teach history. Because, you know, history, I, I never liked history as a kid at all. So I can't even believe I got involved with a history joke book. I found history very boring. I was a math science guy. And I found, you know, memorizing all the dates and the wars and the generals and all that stuff, you know, was kind of annoying to me. So I, I hated history. But the history that we use is not only like generals and wars and stuff like that. We would do things like, you know, on December 1st, you know, 18, you know, 1921, uh, the first commercial flight was from New York to Boston. That was the first commercial airline flight. Or so we had all kinds of interesting things in history, like science and technology and sports and celebrities and stuff like that. And we would do jokes on those things as well as, you know, pure, you know, history, you know, like, like you would learn in school. So, gotcha. uh, so that's that joke book. I gotcha. Anything I, I, we're, I know that you're getting, you're getting tired. I don't want to keep you too much longer. No, no. <laughs> I'm up for this now. No, I got my second win now. <laughs> okay. So I want you just to kind of, in closing that joke book, what, you know, you, you had some, some help. That's always a, that's cause that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing given, you know, more ideas mean more things you got to sift through. So what were the easiest and hardest parts of, of putting this whole thing together? It sounds like you're the one that was tasked with that. Well, it's interesting you say that I was enormously tasked with this joke book. There's no question about it, but that's my, fault because i when i get involved in a project i kind of i want to have control of it so you know the other guys wrote the joke you know they wrote jokes but um i wrote a lot of jokes and i did editing of the book and my son got involved he wrote a program to like collate certain jokes certain ways and it was a very very big project the illustrations mike morris did the illustrations too but he, he got so involved with a podcast, uh, a Howard Stern shoot-off podcast. It's called The Uncle Rico Show, by the way. It went viral. And then he couldn't do some illustrations after that. And so we were halfway through the book. And I got stuck with finding another illustrator for the book. And it's a really weird story because we couldn't find an illustrator. And I went on this website called Fiverr. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you get things for five bucks. Or anyway, you used to be able to get things for five bucks. Now they charge in multiples of five bucks. So anyway, make a long story short, I found another artist in um, where was he? South Africa. And his name was also Mike. His name is Mike Crumb, C-R-U-M-B-S. And he did illustrations that were indistinguishable from Mike Morse's illustrations. It was amazing. We found this guy and he finished the illustrations for the book. So the point of my story is, yeah, I got tasked with all these different things. It was a tremendous amount of work. But again, I don't mind staying up three till three in the morning when I'm working on jokes. The time goes so fast for me. You know, when you're enjoying something, it, it's not work. It's like, it's like that old saying, you know, you can find something you really enjoy doing. It's not really work. And that's how joke writing is for me. You know, I can, I can sit with the project until it's right. And I, it, the time will fly by. And I don't get tired from it. I just do it and do it and do it. And uh, I don't I don't stop till it's done. Well, it sounds like it paid off. You said it was the, the number one joke book on Amazon. So that's saying yeah. something. Yeah, worked out pretty well. Yeah, for sure. And I want you now, you, you sent me a video of this 
comedian president on YouTube. I watched it. What in the credits? Your your name's listed a lot. So how did how did this happen? What, how, what your involvement and and okay. uh, how did you get involved with that? All right, I'll tell you the whole evolution of this. Um, Ten years ago, I started doing some shows, some comedy shows in New York City, and one of the shows is called The Ugg Show, UG, and it's run by Todd Montesi, very well-known New York comedian. He was on the show Crashing, HBO's show Crashing. So he had a Tuesday night show, and I was always in New York on Tuesday nights for years. So I did his show several times. And about, I guess about nine years, nine, ten years ago, there was a young comedian on the show, and his name is Jason Scoop. And I saw this guy perform, and he's not only a great, great comedian, he is... And I'll say this unabashedly. He's the best impressionist you're ever going to see. He's going to be very, very famous. He's getting there already. His name is Jason Scoop, S-C-O-O-P. And after the first or second time I saw Jason perform on one of these shows with me, I called my wife back in Florida. I said, listen, I just met a guy who's going to be, and I didn't know how to compare him. I said, he's going to be the next Jim Carrey. You know, this guy is a mega talent. And I told Jason, I thought that very early on. And he said, thank you. Um, and a lot of people have told me that actually. So when he said that to me, I was thinking, well, a lot of people tell you that, but I'm going to try to do a project with you sometime because you're that good. I really want to work with you. You know, said that to myself and, you know, we kept in touch and we were friendly over the years. And um, actually for the um, Haha history book, I, I enlisted him on TikTok and YouTube to do a joke of the day for us. From the history book and he would get on every day for several months and he would do the joke of the day in a different impersonation now this guy can impersonate anybody and i mean anybody he does all the comedians he'll do chris rock seinfeld kramer um bill cosby cat williams on and on and on everybody dead on okay i don't you watch the film so you saw some of what he can do he does all the politicians he does the actors he's amazing this guy and he is an incredible comedian as well most impressionists are just impressionists and also jason won dana carvey's tv show contest called first impressions a few years ago he was the winner of that show so this guy is a solid role and i finally uh thought of a project about a year about i guess about eight months ago to do with him and the project was something called, I called it Comedian President. What I wanted to do was intertwine um, impressions that he does. In other words, do a project that would showcase many of his impressions at one time in one, in one project. So the idea I came up with is that we would do impressions of comedians and presidents in this way. Um, the premise was that because Zelensky in the Ukraine uh, is doing so well. And he was a comedian before he became president of the Ukraine. Um, that Americans have become fed up with our politicians and we've decided to enlist our best comedians to run for president. So the film is in the form of like a press conference where famous comedians do their campaign speech and famous ex-presidents and other politicians would comment on those speeches. So we had, for instance, Bill Burr and uh, Chris Rock and Seinfeld and Gilbert Gottfried and uh, Cat Williams, few others. They would do their campaign campaign speeches 
And in between, we had guys like Obama and Biden and Trump and Bernie Sanders do, um, you know, their their commentary on those speeches. So it was a 24 minute uh, project, you know, film, and we submitted it to film festivals and it's winning awards in film festivals now in L.A. and New York and uh, New Jersey. You know, we've been in actually three film festivals already. So it was a great, I'm very, I was very happy to do that project with Jason. I always wanted to do a project with him. He's going to be really famous. And I'm very, I'm very proud that uh, I was really involved with that. Yeah, it's, it's certainly impressive. You just, I mean, you mentioned how it's kind of in the form of a press conference, you've got, you know, a, a news anchor throwing to all these people and every single one of them is done by, by Jason. So it just shows that shows the variety of things that he can do. Unbelievable. And even and for that project, too, I got to say, I mean, it was my baby. I, I worked on this thing night and day for three months. I lived, breathed and uh, lived, slept and breathed this project. I became obsessed with getting it right. The backgrounds, the backgrounds you see for everybody and the graphics and even the music. I worked with a friend of mine down here in Florida named Anthony Espina. He's a composer for Netflix films, like really big movies. And he did the music for us and it was like it was a great project. I was really happy to be involved with that project. And yeah, it really show I really feel that it showcases him very well. Yeah, I I, I agree for sure. So, so don't forget Jason Scoop. He's going to be really big. Jason Scoop for sure. Yeah. Um, I want you to tell us now. I I ended you you kind of talked beforehand that you've got a lot of stuff in the works. I've talked to enough people. I know you know what you can and cannot talk about when it comes to. NDAs and all this stuff, but talk about what you've got coming up, things that people can look forward to. Well, I have two uh, song parodies in the works. Uh, they're political, and I think they're going to be popular. That's all I can say right now. There you go. I like yeah. it. I like it. So how can people follow along with you and and, and see what, what, what you do have coming once it, once you can release it? Well, I'm on Facebook, and I, you know, I friend people on Facebook. I put stuff out on Facebook. I'm a big believer in putting your stuff out there. You know, a lot of people are afraid to put jokes out there, but most of the jokes I do are, um, you know, they're political, they're, they're um, throwaways, basically. You know, they're monologue type jokes and they don't have a long shelf life. So I have no problem putting material, you know, on the internet. The good comedians, you know, they don't, they don't have a problem with that. Like guys like Jim Gaffigan and Bill Burr, the top guys, they put their stuff out. They're not afraid to because they know they have talent and they can keep, they can keep coming up with stuff. So a lot of, some people are guarded, you know, they don't want to put anything on the internet, you know, but I, I'm totally the opposite of that. And that's helped me also because, you know, I've gotten opportunities from people in the business um, just from them having seen my stuff on Facebook. Jokes on Facebook. You know, I got a call from a famous guy who said, uh, well, I'll, I'll mention, Eddie Brill is the, he was the uh, the uh, comedy director for the David Letterman show for 17 years. And I became friendly with Eddie and he, he saw my stuff on Facebook and he would send comedians to me and other people to, uh, to write jokes for them. You know, I was in Paris one time with my family on vacation and a top sports guy, sports commentator, uh, called me. I couldn't believe it because, you know, he has a call-in, very famous call-in show. Everybody calls him. So I'm in Paris and he calls me. He says, yeah, the guy on Letterman said uh, you could write roast stuff for me. I'm I'm going to be the MC of a, a roast for an NBA ref that's retiring. So I said, no problem. I, I went back to my hotel room like in an hour. I banged it out. But my point here is that 
just by putting my jokes on Facebook, I got an opportunity like that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to mark yourself that way. And, you know, the younger comedians, they understand social media. A big part of the comedian's day these days is, you know, making videos and getting on social media and all that stuff. It's as important as having good material. It's as, it's as important as being funny. You know, you can be the funniest person in the world if if you're not adept at social media or hire somebody who is, then, you know, it's hard to get anywhere these days. So it's, it's a very important aspect of, of, of the business right now. All right. So, so people wanting to follow along with you, oh, Facebook's yeah, okay. so the best Facebook, place. Yeah. Also, you know, my website is neilberlinercomedy.com. So, you know, if you want me to write for you, you know, to increase your minutes or, you know, help you with whatever comedy project you have, um, there's a form on there if you want to, if you want to get in touch with me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. And your interview is very good because you are attuned to what um, you're attuned to the field. I don't know if you're specialized in comedy. I think you have more of a broad, a broader um, net than you cast with your podcast, but all your questions were very um, intuitive. I think, you know, as, as far as I'm, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I appreciate that. So that was Neil Berliner. Really, really enjoyed speaking with him. He transitioned too fast into into saying complimentary things. Sometimes people do that at the end, and I, I very much appreciate it, but I cut it out a lot of times just because I don't want to be like, hey, look at these people saying nice things about me, but it happened too fast, so I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't transition without looking crazy edited, but I really, really do appreciate uh, Neil's kind words. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation such an amazing guy he's got so many awesome things going on urge you to check out that joke book i urge you to check out uh, comedian president on youtube both of those uh, links will be in the show notes um if you're at all interested in i guess kind of his uh his touch-ups for uh, for your comedy let's say that you're you're a comedian now and you want to add a few minutes of uh of material he's really great when it comes to that let's say you're a, a movie star and you're about ready to do a roast and you need some help there i'm sure uh, neil would would be happy to to help there as well but uh, yeah i urge you to follow along with him if it's your first time listening to this podcast or you haven't already go leave a, uh, a five-star rating on apple and on spotify i appreciate that very much leave a written review on apple even more amazing go follow on instagram not in the huff podcast jacksnuff.com not in the huff with jacksnuff on facebook a lot of places to follow along. Uh, you'll want to catch us next week. Another amazing guest. Uh, so we'll see you then. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think. Or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome. <laughs>